Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Last week uh, we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and Bathsheba. And we set the context in the background for understanding it. But we also took a little bit of time to discuss the rather lack of in-depth approach that Christianity usually has taken to explain this important narrative. But we also discussed the general view of Judaism that allegorizes this story to the point that its important purpose is practically unrecognizable. So critical is what is contained in the story of David and Bathsheba that we're not even going to finish this chapter today. Now, let me begin by saying something that's, well, it's pretty sure to get me in trouble. <laughs> with the modern mainstream of Christianity as well as with Orthodox Judaism. It is that allegory should hold nothing but the most minimal possible place in biblical teaching or in forming our theology. Allegory ought to be reserved for illustration, perhaps, but not for seeking biblical truth and principles or for study or for establishing doctrine. Recall that the definition of allegory is that a scripture passage means something different than from what it says. That the author's intent is not the words he wrote down, but something else entirely. Thus, although a verse might say up, it means down. Although it says yes, it might mean no. It says evil, it means good. It says I did not abolish means I did abolish. And so on. Unfortunately, allegory is used by the church and the synagogue as perhaps the primary tool to examine Holy Scripture and, and when delivering sermons. And, and often the reason is, is as a means to validate man-made principles and traditions. To uphold their own social agendas as if they were God-ordained. In other words, religious authorities and councils often develop faith doctrines and principles and then they read them back into the meaning of the Bible. Thus, by using allegory, a biblical passage can be rearranged and restated to mean anything that upholds a particular viewpoint or tenet of systematic theology. There's no better example of this for Jew or Gentile than the story of David and Bathsheba. Now for the Christian, it is typically related to us as an exciting and comforting children's tale of the love of a handsome and powerful man for a stunningly beautiful woman and of confession and repentance for a terrible wrongdoing responded to with unlimited and unconditional forgiveness by the God of Israel. Now for the Jew, it's a story of great merit for David. 
that further elevates his status and perfection before the Lord. Of great treachery by Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and of the justice that he received by means of his demise, and of the playing out of God's will from a determination that David and Bathsheba would be married and produce Solomon, a decision that God had made before the world was formed. So with these two foundational doctrines in mind, the Gentile Christian translation scholars have played fast and loose with some of the Hebrew original Hebrew words to achieve their goal, and Bible teachers and pastors have tended to kind of gloss over David's sins and God's curses upon him in favor of focusing solely on David's repentance and the Father's mercy so as to harmonize their doctrine with biblical teachings. The Hebrew scholars, in order to maintain their immutable stance that David was near perfect, Messiah-like in every way, they turn every divine condemnation against David into praise for him and dismiss every God-directed consequence of David's sin as theoretical, but never actually being inflicted upon him. Oh, there are God principles contained in this chapter and the next one that indeed are breathtaking. And they can cause even as unemotional person as myself to choke up in tears. So we're going to painstakingly go over these passages. So I want you to stay alert. I think perhaps you're going to view this episode a little differently by the time we conclude if you pay close attention. So let's reread this pivotal chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 344 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Follow along with me. Pay pay real close attention to this. There's a lot here. In the spring, at the time when kings go out to war, David sent out Joab, his servants who were with him, and all of Israel. They ravaged the people of Ammon and laid siege to Rabbah. But David stayed in Jerusalem. Once after his afternoon nap, David got up from his bed and he went strolling on the roof of the king's palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and she was very beautiful. David made inquiries about the woman and was told that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he went to bed with her, for she had been purified from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent a message to David. I'm pregnant. David sent this order to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah had come to him, David asked him how Joab was doing how the people were feeling. How's the war going? And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. 
Uriel left the king's palace and was followed by a present of uh, food from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's palace with all the servants of his lord, and he didn't go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why don't you go down to your house? And Uriah answered David, The ark, Israel, and Judah stay in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the countryside. Why should I go into my house to eat and drink and and go to bed with my wife? As surely as you live, I'll not do such a thing. David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, tomorrow I'll let you leave. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the following day. David summoned him. He ate and drank with him and got him drunk. But in the evening he went out and lay on his bed with his Lord's servants and didn't go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah on the front lines of the fiercest fighting and then pull back from him so that he'll be wounded and killed. So while Joab had the city under siege, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the toughest defenders were. And the men of the city went out and fought Joab, and a number of people fell, including some of David's servants, with Uriah the Hittite among the dead. Joab sent a messenger to David reporting all the news concerning the war, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the king all the news about the war, he may become angry and ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they'd shoot from the wall? Didn't you think about the person who struck Abimelech, the son of Yerubasheth, that a woman threw an upper millstone down on him from the wall so that he died at Tevetz? Why did you go so near the wall? Well, if he says this, tell him, Your servant Uriah is dead also. So the messenger left. And on arrival, he told David all that Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men were overpowering us and came out after us into the countryside, but we chased them all the way back to the entrance of the city gate. Now the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David said to the messenger, Well, tell Joab, don't don't let this matter get you down. The sword devours in one way or another. Intensify your battle against the city. Overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned her husband. When the mourning was over, David sent and took her home to his palace. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But Adonai saw what David had done as evil. The first words of chapter 11 are, In the spring when kings go out to war. Now first of all, the words, In the spring, have been added by translators. They don't actually exist in the original language. Rather, springtime is presupposed because we know from voluminous historical records that the customary time when kings lead their militaries into sieges or long-term battles is the spring. But we must also recall 
that this story begins with Joab taking the Israelite army to lay siege in Rabbah. It actually begins back in chapter 10. Let me refresh your memory. Chapter 10, 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. So Joab and the people went with him to battle Aram, and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that Aram had fled, they likewise fled before Avishai, and they retreated into the city. Joab returned from the people of Ammon, and he went to Jerusalem. So when the Syrians, the Arameans, led by Hadad-Azer, fled, and then the Ammonites, they retreated into their fortified city of Rabbah, Joab took his army and he returned to Jerusalem. Now the reason for Joab packing up and going home is that in order to take Rabbah, a siege of the city would have to be employed. A siege is basically a long-term blockade. In other words, troops surround the, the walled city where the residents and the military have barricaded themselves inside. No one's allowed to get in or out. The surrounding army, they at times will pound away at the fortifications or the city gate. But most often the siege amounts to merely waiting for the city's food supply and often water supply to run out. Then the city's army either surrenders or they continue to fight in an ever-weakening condition due to disease and malnutrition. The result's inevitable unless the city is able to hold out until the weather once again turns bad and so this attacking army leaves. Or maybe unless an ally attacks the surrounding army and rescues the city residents. Well, apparently, the battle of chapter 10 was taking place in the late fall as the weather was getting cold and rainy. Sieges were often harder on the surrounding army than those who lived inside the walls, at least at first. Thus, where possible, sieges were begun when the rainy season and the cold had abated so that there'd be, oh, eight months or so of good weather laying ahead. Thus, as chapter 11, verse 1 states, undoubtedly it was spring when this happened. So verse 1, now, also contains a meaningful word play that almost any Hebrew reader would have picked up on and seen the intent. I, I think it's pretty interesting. So let's take a look at it. Take a look at your Bibles. And it begins, it says uh, there in verse 1, when kings go out. Well, the Hebrew is Melech Yatsah. Melech is king. Yatsah is going out. Go out. Go out is a military term for engaging in battle. But next we are told that David sent out Joab. In Hebrew it says, David shalach Joab. Shalach means to send. It's a term, shalach, that's customarily applied to a messenger, not to a military general. A messenger in Hebrew is a Malak. So a Melech, 
a king and a malak messenger are spelled identically. Mem, Lamed, Kaf, Sofit. Okay. The only difference is the way the word's vocalized. In other words, since written Hebrew is a consonant-only alphabet, then when a word is said out loud, then the vowel sounds are added to it. So the point that is cleverly obvious in the Hebrew, but it gets lost in the translation, is that a definite derogative tone is being set. That instead of David doing what Israelite kings are supposed to do, going out with their army, leading them in battle, David used Joab, his general, like a messenger. And he sent him out with the army while David stayed safely and comfortably behind. So this whole story starts out on the wrong foot. Now the subtle descent of David that we saw beginning in the previous chapters is now becoming more visible and tangible. David is behaving like the typical Gentile kings of that region. Thus near the end of verse 1, our complete Jewish Bible and most versions say that David stayed in Jerusalem. What it says in Hebrew is that David Yashaf in Jerusalem, a more literal translation of Yashaf is not staying. It's not staying. It is sat. Yashaf is the opposite of Yatsa. That is, David sat rather than go out. See, see to stay is a neutral term. It's not good nor bad. But to sit is to seen as a determined and a conscious refusal to not go out. Who is David refusing? The Lord. It's God's commandment that an Israelite king go out rather than sit and be served. So this is not a matter of kingly prerogative. The story begins with intentional disobedience to the Lord on David's part. And it gets progressively worse. So in the spring or early summer, verse 2 has David living the life of leisure while his army is away fighting the enemy without his leadership. One hot afternoon, he's napping on the rooftop of his palace because there's a breeze up there. And he awakens and he takes a stroll. He looks down upon the citizenry's housing below his palace. And there, to his delight, is a simply gorgeous woman immersing herself in water. His lust kicks into overdrive. And instantly he thinks he has to have her for his harem. David's palace has been discovered by archaeologists. It's located on the eastern slope at the northern end of the ridge that the city of David is built upon. So everything 
from his palace location is at a little bit lower level. Bathsheba's residence, no doubt, was just inside the city walls of David, near the Kidron Ravine. It's the Kidron Ravine down here. All right. Because her husband, Uriah, was a military officer. And so he was allowed a privileged residential location. David sent messengers to see exactly who this beauty was. Turned out, she was a married woman. Her father was a fellow named Elam. Her husband's referred to as Uriah the Hittite. This did not mean that he was a national Hittite, a citizen of the Hittite Empire. Rather, it simply meant that his family lineage were Hittites, who somewhere along the line switched allegiance to Israel and thus they became Israelites. His name means Light of Yah or Light of God. So with such a pious name that invokes the God of Israel, there's no reasonable scenario that has him retaining his Hittite identity. Again in verse 4, the translation to English hides another important wordplay that the Hebrew makes very obvious. The phrase, sent a messenger, shalak malak, to go fetch Bathsheba, corresponds back to verse 1, where the king, the Melech, sent Shalak, Joab, and the Israeli army off to war. You see the link? David wrongly sends his general off to war, and Bathsheba's husband, of course, is part of that army who went. And now, with that army gone, David wrongly sends his messenger off to fetch Bathsheba for the purpose of adultery. Told you it got worse. Now, the name Bathsheba, it's not as certain in its meaning as the name of her husband. See, because the word Bat or Bat means daughter. Now, it's not a word play that she got the name Bathsheba because David saw her taking a bath. <laughs> Sheba can be used in a couple of ways in the Hebrew. It can indicate the number seven or it can mean an, an oath. Some sages contend that her name implies that she was Elam's seventh daughter, or maybe his seventh child, or that the symbolism of the number seven, divine completeness, that was the intent of her name. On the other hand, other sages say that it does mean oath, and that her birth was considered the result of some type of a vow made to the Lord by her parents. It was usual in ancient biblical times that the mother named the child, although the father did have the prerogative to intervene if he saw fit. But another interesting note is that the bathing that was occurring when David first got a glimpse of her concerned ritual purity. The bathing was not about personal hygiene. It was about her obedience to God's commandments. Verse 4 states unemotionally, just very matter of fact, 
that David seduced her, had sexual relations with her, and that after she went home, she sent word to David that sometime later now, she was pregnant. The Hebrew word used to add some information about this sexual encounter is that she had purified from her Tumah. Tumah means uncleanness. And in this instance, it's referring to Nida, the state of ritual uncleanness that occurs during a woman's period. We studied this back in Leviticus 15, and we're not going to get all detailed about it today. Rather, I just want to make a few points pertinent to this story about David. First of all, the rule is that once a woman starts her period, she becomes ritually unclean. During the entire time of her flow, she's not to have intercourse with her husband or he becomes ritually unclean as well. After the flow ends, she remains unclean another seven days. And then on the eighth day, she's to sacrifice two kosher birds at the temple. These are the least expensive of all sacrifices. Immerse herself in a mikvah, a ritual bath, now she is once again ritually clean. So a woman is ritually unclean due to her cycle for anywhere from roughly 10 to 14 days total or thereabouts. And so abstinence all during that time is called for. Otherwise, the man becomes ritually impure and he has to go through all the prescribed Levitical protocol to become clean again. And whereas, and this is important, whereas it's certainly not a sin for a woman to be un- unclean due to her period, she's not in control of this, it's not her fault, it is a sin for a man to have sexual relations with her because it's a choice on his part to disobey God's commandment not to. He has a choice as to whether he becomes ritually unclean. She doesn't. When we first hear of Bathsheba, the moment David sees her, it is therefore the day of her mikvah. The eighth day after her period is ended and she is carrying out the last of the steps necessary to become ritually pure again. David's fully aware of this. And so verse 4 makes it clear. That's why it adds the words. That when David took her to bed, she had indeed completed the process of returning to ritual purity. How David was able to rationalize in his mind to commit adultery, but at the same time, wait until his adultery partner was fully ritually clean so that he didn't commit that particular sins beyond me. So get the picture. David has a sexual encounter with Bathsheba a day or two after she's become ritually clean. And that means it's around 10 days or so after her cycle is ended. Medically speaking, this is around the peak time for the woman's fertility. Again, 
because ancient Hebrews and modern ones too for that matter are fully aware of all this fertility timing stuff then one understands all the more why this information was even recorded and seen as important. Since she was a healthy young female, it was highly likely that pregnancy would be the result. David knew that. Whether he factored that in or his hormones just got the better of him, and it just didn't matter, it's hard to gauge. But by no means was he ignorant of the possible consequences. But another clear matter is, this is the key to the story, there is no way that this pregnancy could have been attributed to Bathsheba's husband so that nobody would be in need the wiser of her adultery because he was away on active military duty and he had been for some time. That she had a flow and was therefore in need of a mikvah, a ritual bath and purification tells us and everybody else that indeed she was not pregnant at the time of her and David's encounter. Now there are some other common sense and self-evident factors that we need to consider as the story continues. First, is that David did not ensure secrecy by going himself, maybe after dark, to Bathsheba and bringing her to his palace. Rather, he sent messengers. Now, you know, messengers are just palace servants. They talk among themselves. David couldn't be couldn't couldn't help but to be aware of that fact. There was no way that what David did was going to be kept a secret for very long. Second, there is no hint of coercion. Bathsheba was not kidnapped and she wasn't forced. While she was probably reluctant on the one hand, no doubt on the other, to be intimate with the king of Israel did have its allure. And as a normal healthy woman, it must have been tempting since her husband had been away for several weeks at the least. Further, in 1 Kings 1 and 2, we find a very aggressive and authoritative queen mother, Bathsheba. This woman had some ambition. She was not easily intimidated. So tradition, as well as later biblical stories about her, leaves little room for doubt that she was complicit in her sexual fling with David and she couldn't be viewed whatsoever as a victim. Well, now that David knows she is pregnant, man, he's got a problem. What happens when her husband finds out and makes a fuss? By all rights, David ought to be executed for this. Of course, nobody executes the king. But think about how this would sully David's sterling reputation. Think about what the other military officers of pretty wives would think the next time David sent them off to war. David can't let this happen. So he devises a plan to hide his sin. The thing he seems to have completely put out of his mind 
just as his predecessor Saul had done, was that despite any amount of cunning plans to hide his motives and dirty deeds from his subjects, God saw and knew all. There'd be consequences. But but truly, doesn't all that talk about us not being able to hide anything from the Lord, but at same time that all seems like just so much theory instead of reality to us? I mean, I'm sure it felt that way to David. I mean, don't we occasionally just go ahead and do what we know is wrong? We intentionally break God's commandments and then somehow think that if others just don't find out about it, that's the most important thing. If we can just keep it quiet and life moves on uninterrupted, we've more or less dodged a bullet. And why is it that we think that way? Because the earthly consequences of our bad behavior seem more real and important and immediate than the heavenly consequences. So that's what we're mostly concerned about avoiding. You know, if we cheat on our spouse and our spouse finds out, he or she probably is not going to keep quiet about it. There goes our social circle. Spouse isn't likely to just forget about this either. So our lives at home are about to become miserable. Can we continue on at the same church or synagogue? Probably not. What happens if our family hears about it? We'll be humiliated, maybe even shunned. More likely than not, we're going to be divorced, our family destroyed, our hard-won assets split up. We're going to be severely financially diminished, if not devastated. So therefore, all of our effort is focused on avoiding any of these calamities. But what about God? What about the divine consequences of our sin as concerns our relationship with Him? You know, that's usually a little easier to put aside. We'll worry about that later. Because we probably don't really expect to be struck by lightning or suddenly get a, get a brain tumor as punishment because as way too much false doctrine has it, God's obligated to just wave His hand and forgive us if we're believers. So the idea of severe punishments, just theory to us. We've been taught that Christ's blood negates the possibility of divine punishment. So hallelujah, we're home free. Therefore, from the spiritual perspective, there doesn't seem to be very much to worry about, does there? At least not in the near term. As wrong-minded as all this is, isn't this what our humanness often tells us? And we choose to believe it. Well, David is soon to find out otherwise. So David hurriedly devises this cover-up plan. And he sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. It's going to take a few days for the messenger to arrive at the battlefield in the Transjordan where he was, then for Uriah to get back to Jerusalem. 
You know, when the king summons you, you make a beeline for the palace when you arrive. You don't stop to eat. You don't visit anybody. You don't freshen up. Uriah arrives and David is concerned to not seem too anxious or behave suspiciously. So he makes small talk with Uriah. He tries to be cool, friendly. He appropriately asks about Uriah's commander, Yoav. He asks about the soldiers. How are things going at the front? There's no mention of Uriah's answers. Because the questions weren't sincere anyway. And after the customary chit-chat, David tries to dismiss Uriah by graciously suggesting he goes and washes his feet. Foot washing was typical Middle Eastern custom practiced at every level of society. Simply it was that after a long journey that always involved walking in open sandals, one's feet were hot and sore and pretty filthy. Full body bathing just didn't occur very often for many reasons. For one, it just wasn't seen as needed. And for another, water was usually precious. took a lot of effort to obtain it, haul it around. But washing feet only took maybe a quart of water, so anybody could do that. Uriah was dismissed by the king, but instead of going back to his own home just yards away from David's palace, he chose to stay with the king's royal court and servants. Uriah considered himself as still on duty. And when David found out about this, he summoned Uriah. And he wanted to know why he didn't go down to his own home. Now understand that on the one hand, David telling Uriah to go home and wash his feet, this wasn't seen as an official order. It was just kind of more of a permission that he could go on his way and and have some time with his wife. But on the other hand, there was a reason that David suggested this that went well beyond showing any kind of kindness to Uriah. But for Uriah, he had to know that more was up than David making a general inquiry about Joab's death and how the soldiers were doing. You don't bring a military officer home on a several days journey to do what any courier could do. Certainly the king must have wanted something else from Uriah. So, Uriah being a faithful soldier, he hung around to find out what that something might be. When David hears that Uriah didn't go home, he calls for him. He says, why didn't you go? I mean, after all, you've just arrived from a long and arduous journey. And Uriah answers that he just could not bring himself to sleep comfortably at home in his own bed inside his nice house, consort with his wife when the other soldiers, all of his superiors, were roughing it in tents, their lives on the line, far away from home. Besides, even the precious Ark of the Covenant... Even the tribal leaders of Judah and Israel were living in tents near the battle. It would have tortured Uriah's conscience and defied his military training as a leader 
to avail himself of such safety and comfort while his comrades were off fighting. There's so much to talk about here. First of all, notice how this Uriah's reaction must have pricked David's conscience to hear such words of unswerving loyalty and genuine concern for the sanctity of the ark and the safety of his fellow soldiers and this from a mere soldier even though he was an officer. What Uriah could not bring himself to do was something even though his comrades at the battle would never find out about it, something that's the very thing that David was doing for himself. Here was the ark of God, the princes, the tribal princes of Israel, all the top military commanders, thousands of soldiers away in a foreign land, fighting, living in tough conditions, while David was home, availing himself not only of comfort in his own harem, but now seducing a soldier's lonely wife. There's another interesting problem that some translations from Hebrew to English hide as regards the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it would have been customary to have the Ark of God near the battle scene. Not close enough to be in danger, but near enough for the soldiers to feel comforted by its presence. No doubt the high priest would have been there with it. But where it says in verse 11, take a look at it, verse 11, that the ark, Judah, and Israel are staying in tents is just flat incorrect. The Hebrew word for tent is oel. But O.L. is not found here. Rather, what is usually translated as tent, like in our complete Jewish Bible, is sukkah. And since we just finished celebrating the biblical feast of Sukkot, you know what a sukkah is. And it's hardly the equivalent of a tent. Soldiers did not camp in a sukkah. So what's going on here? Did they actually build a sukkah for the ark as well as for the the princes of the twelve tribes? Now while we can't say with 100% certainty, it's nearly unthinkable. A sukkah by design had mostly an open roof. It would have made very poor shelter for the tribal leaders, let alone the irreplaceable Ark of the Covenant. Rather, I think it's meant to be taken as a proper noun. The actual word used is Sukkot, which is the plural of Sukkah. And Sukkot is mentioned a few times in the Tanakh as the, well, as a, as the name of a well-known city or place in the Transjordan, maybe 20 miles from where the the siege is taking place over here in Rabah. So what we're being told, I believe, 
is that the tribal leaders, the high priest, and the ark were all located across the Jordan. This is the Jordan River here, over in the Transjordan, at a place called Sukkot. Another thing we must notice. Despite the fact that David had been king over a supposedly united Israel now for several years, the southern tribes that formed Judah and the northern tribes that formed Israel, later on called Ephraim, are still spoken of separately here. As I've stated before, the unity of the north and the south was always fragile. And although it was a useful and happy fiction to think of a, of a close connection of the twelve tribes under David and then Solomon, it was never really so to any great extent. From the time the twelve tribes first formed up for their march out of Egypt, and then especially as they entered Canaan under Joshua, they grouped themselves into coalitions. And the two primary coalitions were the ten tribes that lived to the north of Jerusalem, it was called Israel, and then the two tribes, mostly consisting of Judah, that lived to the south. But now why is David so insistent that Uriah go home? And so personally concerned about it when he didn't. Why especially did David insist that Uriah go home and bed his wife? Well, David now changes his tactics. In verse 12, fearing that any more pressure now upon Uriah to go home is going to rouse suspicion, David tells Uriah that he's to go ahead and stay at the palace and go home the next day. But the next day, David holds a lavish banquet with the goal of getting Uriah happily drunk. And hopefully this makes him irresistibly amorous for his wife. To David's frustration, that didn't work either. The answer to why David was trying so hard to get... Uriah to go home to his wife is becoming transparent. In fact, the sages say that by now Uriah had a pretty good idea of what was going on here. And thus he was possibly refusing to be a willing participant in this deception. The plan was that since Bathsheba was no more than maybe four or five weeks pregnant by David, that if Uriah went home and slept with his wife, the pregnancy could be reasonably explained as the result of Uriah's surprise return home. Then David would be off the hook. Bathsheba too. Desperate David now gets even more drastic in his cover-up attempt. The irony of the story is really getting thick. The faithfulness of Uriah is exposing the unfaithfulness of David. And David is becoming ridden with anxiety 
and he's getting furious. And we're going to finish this up next week.